0: come today to uh, verses 1-6 through of Revelation chapter 9 and first of all the context Uh, in this passage John narrates in greater detail the calamities that target humans as carried out by demonic attackers now that sounds pretty awesome does it not but that is the reality of it but the Lord is with us though that's the point now the appearance of these demonic forces foreshadow the coming of the beast in chapter 13 and the war that he's going to wage against God and the church is prior to Christ's coming in power. Now, the main path main idea of the passage is that the fourth and fifth trumpets bring severe torment from demonic assaults and widespread death. But the survivors still refuse to repent. And so by exhausting every attempt to bring the nations to a better way of thinking. God demonstrates his sovereignty, vindicates his holiness, and justifies his final sentence of doom. The last of verses 1 through 2. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened, with the smoke from the shaft. Well, at the sounding of this fifth trumpet, uh, John witnesses a further petition, a portion I mean of the trumpet visions, that uh, begin with a star falling from the heavens. Now, the angel should be understood as an emissary who acts on God's as God's agent that sets in motion the acts of divine judgment against the sinful world. Now, to picture him quote as a star falling from heaven. Underscores the cosmic significance of his decision. Uh, the parallel is chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, where an angel comes from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit to lock Satan away for a thousand years. Now, stars can be symbols of angels. For example, this is Job chapter four, uh, 38, and it says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measure, surely you know? Or who stretched the line upon it? What were its, uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, now that's a reference to the angels, shouted for joy. And so indeed it can't have that meaning. However, John's angel is an evil spirit. who's granted authority over uh, the shaft of the bottomless pit, is called. Now, the reference is to a narrow vertical uh, opening that leads to the bottomless pit. Now, the Greek word for pit has to do with a depth with no limit, and so that's a long way down, is it not? Well, now, in the Septuagint, uh, the, the Greek translation, which we refer to from time to time, in the Greek translation, it's often translated, it often translates the word to home. Now that's a word that appears at the beginning of Genesis and it has to do with the abyss. And so, uh, <coughs> and so it, it uh, has to do with the abyss and uh, after that with the death of the sea. But in later Judaism and in the New Testament it came to denote a bottomless death below the earth because it was the opposite of heaven which is above the earth and the skies. And so the bottomless pit, or the abyss, referred to the general underworld, that includes both Sheol, now that's a word that has to do with the realm of the righteous and the unrighteous dead. and really it doesn't uh, distinguish between the two in the Psalms. There's that, and then there's Gehenna, or hell as we translate. It's the place of torment, or imprisonment for those awaiting judgment. Now, this verse draws from the expectation that in the end times, God would allow <coughs> demonically inspired forces to have greater measure of freedom to oppress and deceive humans. And that's part of the judgment. Now, you can compare that with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, which says, The cutting of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so it's a deliberate act on their part and God takes that into account. And so he gives them precisely what they want to have. Now, God's purpose in giving the angel uh, the, the key isn't to seal up, access to the pit but to open it wide now that sets in motion the attacks on humanity that fall in verses 5 through 11. but but in his narration of these events john first of all lays out several details that build tension into the story before the full scope of the judgments is made clear now the immediate effect of opening the shaft is a cloud Mm. of smoke that rises from the shaft. Now, its appearance, we're told, is like smoke from a great furnace. You know, that's similar to the judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that from Genesis 19. And God's presence on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 in in Parallels. But it's also like the fires of judgment associated with Gehenna in the New Testament. We know that from uh, all three of the Synoptic Gospels. We know it from the Book of James as well. Now, the threat only increases when the smoke from the shaft is said to darken the sun and the air. That indicates the extensive effect of the cloud of smoke, but it also recalls a prominent feature of the day of the Lord. Now, there are a lot of passages about the day of the Lord, but one prominent one is Joel chapter 2, verses 30 to 32 in particular, which says, I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so that's fairly typical of the Day of the Lord passages. But Joel in particular has in particular this uh, warning note. Well, in verses three, 3 and 4. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those of mankind who had not the seal of God upon their foreheads. Now the forebodings of the first few verses are fulfilled. When supernatural creatures bring judgment and they appear from the cloud of smoke that rises from the pit. Now as was the case with the earlier trumpets, back in chapters, uh, chapter 8 and various verses. The imagery is simply grown from the plagues on Egypt. But mainly there's Joel once again, this, in this case 2, 1 through 11, and the vision of the locust plague. But these locusts are even worse than a natural plague of locusts, if you can imagine that. They strip the land of everything green, but they're unable to harm the human population directly. Now, first of all, they're more than fearful because they're equipped with scorpion-like power to inflict excruciating pain. Now, humans seem to have a a natural regarding scorpions. I know that I do. Scorpions and snakes and various things like that. Wherever they're found... Just because of their seeing and their ability to hide and strike from unexpected places. For example, there's Deuteronomy chapter 8. And again, there are a lot of passages, but Deuteronomy 8, verse 11 to 15. And so just to dip into the passage, it talks about the way that God brought them out of the house of bondage and led them through the great and terrible witness, sorry, wilderness, with is fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Now if this is bad and it is, how much worse to have them swarming everywhere in every place. And so very unpleasant indeed. Now second thing is that unlike natural locusts they're assigned to target not Earth's plant life, but the large portion of the human population left unprotected by God. Now we have here what's called a passive voice. That's when something is acted upon, of course. And so they're, they're, uh, uh, they're told to uh, see what that indicates what ultimately is God's mandate from these uh, invaders from the pit. They're not to harm the green growth of the locust uh, naturally consumed. Things like roast grass or any green growth or any tree. Instead of that, they have to mete out painful harm on the greater part of humanity that weren't protected by God's seal. <laughs> now, it's back in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 that the word seal has the, the sense of authenticate. And so, to authenticate something is to seal it. The saints were empowered to persevere through difficulties, and when they do, the genuineness of their profession is authenticated or it's proven. That means they're really shown to belong to the Lord Himself. And so, the only ones not targeted will be those who have God's seal on their foreheads. And so, as it were, stamped on the forehead, not literally but as the imagery is intended to mean. And so the only ones not targeted will be those who have God's seal on their foreheads. And we're told in verses five and six, they were permitted to torture them for five months and not to kill them. And the torture is like the torture of a scorpion when a man, when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death will flee from them. Now, we're told that these creatures from the pit who bring torture on a large portion of humanity will long to die, they'll seek to die, but they'll not be able to die. Now again, a very frightening prospect, is it not? Now, the words they were not permitted implies the scope of uh, a damage God allows them to inflict. But their demand not to kill, but to torment, calls to mind a passage like Job chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. It says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you move me against him to destroy him without cause." Then Satan answered the Lord, and of course the devil always ready to, uh, you know, to uh, add a word or two, and so he says, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare him. And so we know the story of how Job was given over to the devil. For a while. And there were times when we talk about the patience of Job, but there were times when Job was not patient. <coughs> and so the word really means perseverance. That Job persevered through all the things that were inflicted upon him, even though from time to time he did weaken. Now the torments that they're allowed to inflict uh, are severe, but they're also limited at time. For five months. But whatever meaning we give to the number five, it indicates a longer period of agony than anyone would care to endure. certainly we would not uh, care to endure what we not. Well, John brings (coughs) up again the comparison with earthly scorpions. That's in verse three. He likens the torments to the pain pain that a scorpion delivers. Now, I've never been stung by a scorpion again, but I'm pretty sure that it would be pretty unpleasant. So, to say the least, this isn't something we would want to experience. Now, it's in verse 6 that John shifts from the narrative to an argument. He describes the conditions that are going to prevail in the future when what he's seen comes to pass on earth. Now, from the events just recounted he now anticipates the end-time cosmic judgments that they portray. John uses three future tenses that are introduced by the phrase, in those days. They don't point backward from his day, but to its end-time occurrences. And those who experience these torments will long for death, to relieve them from suffering, but they'll be unable to escape. There's actually a long tradition of uh, suicide, both in the Bible and in the uh, Greco Roman world, especially in the Roman world. Here in Revelation, it's the enemies of God who prefer suicide over life. John here repeats these points a second time now yeah, and personifies death as eluding those who pursue it in their pain. Now, they're quite as tragic. But it's common enough throughout human history. Now down here echoes two passages from the Old Testament. The first is Job chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Why is life given to him that is a misery, and, and, uh, and life to him who is bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures." In his, uh, Jeremiah chapter, three, chapter uh, 8, verse 3, Death should be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of uh, this uh, evil family in all the places where I have been driven, says the Lord. And so again, it's pretty grim stuff, but it's there to give us warning, to give us hope ultimately. And if we believe in Christ, then these things are not going to happen to us. Now, by way of several applications, the first is the nightmare of sin and its consequences. The nightmare of sin and its consequences. Now, the commentator Fanning says the New Testament teaches that, in turn away from God, become darkened in their understanding of what is really at stake in their lives. At some point in this sinful derangement, they come to believe that allegiance to Satan and evil in whatever deceptive form it presents itself, would be to their advantage. What a shock when they belatedly see that he and his minions are alike. What a shock to find that the choices for sin that they make so freely have turned around and have made them victims of it. Visions of revelation are given to dispel each deception and show the truth of how the world of good and evil really works and what is at stake in their choices? And so we can say from a reasonable point of view that there's such a thing as free will, but it's Jonathan Edwards' point that was made originally, that the will is determined by the nature. And so humans are going to make their own choices because of the nature that they possess and That's why we pray that their nature would be changed. Now, a second point is the severity of of the judgment of darkness. Uh, This passage presents a view of the unbeliever's torment as a forceful reminder that their idolatry is all in vain, they're separated from the living God, and they're without hope. And you recall 2 Thessalonians 4. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve over others who have no hope. Now, it's a terrible thing to have no hope. When the vast majority of the world has no hope. So again, to pray that their hopelessness would turn into hope. Now, we can ask the question, <clears throat> when their situation is so desperate, why don't people turn to Christ? Now, it was said of Voltaire, you know, the atheist, that his dying words consisted of calling out the name of Christ both as a blessing and a curse. He couldn't make up his mind which way to go. Now, question is that, is that a measure of the darkness that God's judgment sends on the lost. If so, again, it it's very frightening. And then thirdly, there's another sign to the coin. On the cross, the one criminal, you recall, did cry out and was answered and received God's mercy. <coughs> now, this actually is an allusion to Zechariah 13, verse 1 which says on that day there should be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and unrighteousness. Now the use of water here is to uh, provide cleansing from impurity. And that reflects Ezekiel 36, the whole chapter is quite long, but Ezekiel 36, where the sin of idolatry, which occasioned impurity, is cleansed by the Lord's sprinkling water on a restored Israel. And so, the bottom line is that we pray that many others will do the same and flee to the fountain which is open for sin and unrighteousness.